This episode is brought to you by Media Kicks, the leading influencer marketing agency. Media Kicks connects the world's top brands with engaged audiences through social media influencers. Their campaigns drive brand awareness, audience engagement, and product sales for top brands like Nordstrom, Blue Apron, David Yurman, Hallmark, and more. Visit MediaKicks.com to get started with your influencer campaign today. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Rupak Saluja, founder and CEO of the 120 Media Collective, a Mumbai-based media company that produces, distributes, and monetizes content across multiple platforms. He is also the founder and CEO of Superfly, a joint venture with Diagonal View that empowers digital video creators in Asia and beyond. Rupak is a serial entrepreneur who began his career working at ad agencies before launching several successful ventures, including translabeled Procyon Records, commercial production companies Sniper and Big Bang Films, and digital media agency Jack in the Box Worldwide. Rupak has repeatedly been named as one of Asia's most influential leaders in advertising, media, and marketing by CNN, Campaign Asia Pacific's 40 Under 40, Impact Digital Power 100, and more. Rupak, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure on my end, uh, you know, being part of the audience and now getting a chance to participate and contribute. You're originally from New Delhi, but you moved to Hungary and studied marketing at Budapest Economics University. What prompted that decision? So I was born in Delhi, but it's a, you know, when someone asks me where you're from, it's a very hard question to answer because I actually literally moved to a new country every three years of my life growing up. So my dad's a diplomat, so we were moving around. So I have had the good fortune to have lived in 10 countries on six continents. And you speak eight languages? Uh, something like that. Six pretty well okay. and two kind of patchy. And those would be English? English, Hindi, Punjabi, Nepalese, uh-huh. Spanish, French, Hungarian, some Greek, some Italian. Wow, so that's nine. Right. And what prompted your interest or ability for language? I guess it was just about the fact that it came from the fact that I was moving around all my life. And I became, you know, when you are changing your surroundings as a three-year-old, as a six-year-old, you become very conscious and aware of what's going on in the world and the similarities and differences. And so I guess I already had multiple language tracks in my head by the time I was five. So it's kind of, it was just there. Has that had any parallels with your journey as an entrepreneur, being able to adapt to change or being in different environments so easily? Oh, completely. I think it's absolutely instrumental. It's a huge part of who I am. I think one is the ability to adapt to change. In fact, I kind of thrive on change, I'd say. And what I've realized now is I'm very comfortable with uncertainty. And I only realized that when I saw other people not being so comfortable with uncertainty. So that's one. And then the fact that The change was not just different environments within one cultural context, but different environments culturally and around the world. So that allows me to be very comfortable in different geographies and talking to different people. And I think it's, I personally find that that's been a big asset for me as an entrepreneur or even before that I was working. And now as a parent, have you thought about how you want to share that ability with your children? That's a great question because it is, my wife is half Indian and half English. And so she's pretty international in her background as well. And so it was, so our our two boys, Zen and Kai, who are six and four, actually didn't even come from us. So Zen, one day at the age of four, told me that he wanted to learn Spanish. Before his fifth birthday, he had Spanish lessons. 
So, which is, you know, I mean, in India, nobody speaks Spanish really. So it's quite interesting. And then his younger brother got onto it. And so it's, again, it's been kind of natural. But I mean, given that we live in Bombay and while, you know, there is quite an international setting around, I mean, his grandmother who lives in the same building as us, my mother-in-law is blonde English, right? So in an Indian context, it's quite, quite different. But I think that I love an opportunity to be able to have them exposed to immersed rather in other cultures uh, at a young age because I think it really does bring a lot to the table. And now there are so many resources, right? So Rosetta Stone or Duolingo, things that they can learn on their own and, and get exposure to a broader global perspective. Exactly. So after finishing university, you began your career in the agency world working at Young Rubicam in Budapest and then Ogilvy and Mather in Paris. How did that experience shape your future career? I think the grounding that I got of, I call it sort of blue chip old school advertising world and old school not to say that you know it's a relic of the past but just in terms of you know grounding of brand communications brand strategy even things like you know account management and client servicing those basics really held me in good stead going forward and so the other side of it was that you know six years into it I realized that I knew a lot about building brands and how to manage brand communications internationally, but I felt I didn't really understand much more about other stuff, which is why I quit and then went to business school. And around that time, you also started your own business, right? Well, I had something, I was a DJ, I was a trance DJ, mm -hmm. and I had a record label along with another DJ in Budapest. I was in Paris. How did you get and into DJing? I got really passionate about the music initially. And I guess I had the content creator gene in me there all along. And, you know, that's when it first manifested. I wasn't comfortable just being a passive listener. It started when, I, you know, I had music and, you know, we, I had friends over and I'd just like play different things. And they'd be like, hey, you really know what to play. You should become a DJ. I said, you know, as a matter of fact, I was thinking the same thing. And then it started from there. You know, that was my kind of first brush was entrepreneurship. But I have to be honest, it was my partner who did all the heavy lifting. My job was more artist relationships, A&R work, really. Do you still spend? No, I haven't for over, it's been a good 10 years now. Yeah. Do you listen to trance music or? Um, occasionally, my, my, you know, since I stopped spinning, my, my tastes have become more diverse, actually. So I listen to a lot of different music. And then, you know, that was the pre-Spotify era. And now, you know, you can listen to anything all the time without making much of an effort. Yeah, so that was the DJing part. I then went in 05, in 04, I went to INSEAD in France and Singapore to my MBA. And after that, I decided, you know, it was in 04, India had just started, quote unquote, shining. And as an Indian who lived outside of India for most of my life, I wasn't used to India being spoken of with such curiosity, positive curiosity as happened that year. And so that got me really excited. And I said, you know what, I think I need to move to India. I'd never worked in India. I'd lived in India for about four years at different times. So I decided to move to India and I moved to Bombay where I'd never lived. Why um, Bombay? Well, that's where the action is in this business. It's also very um, cosmopolitan. It's got the energy of New York, I'd say, in many ways. And it's a city where, you know, which is pretty welcoming to people from outside the city. And so I did that and I wanted to start something in the media and entertainment space and ended up starting a commercials production company along with a few other partners, uh, none of whom were part of the company any longer. And that was the first piece of the business. That was Sniper? That was Bang Bang Films, um, which kind of got rechristened to Sniper recently. Bang Bang, you know, we did things a little bit differently. 
Namely, we started operating with a heightened level of professionalism compared to what was going on in that market. And we brought in international talent in the form of directors from LA, New York, wherever. And in about four years time, Bang Bang Films had become the largest TV commercials production company in India. So that was that. And then the next step was Jack in the Box. It started as something undefinable and evolved into what is today India's, I guess, leading independent digital agency. So we run a lot of digital business for various brands, including seven Unilever brands, then a bunch of other consumer goods, hospitality, et cetera, et cetera. So that's Jack in the Box. And so you have... You ever have any legal run-ins with the fast food chain? No, but interestingly, we get mails from uh, people selling industrial grilling equipment. <laughs> Keeps it interesting. You yeah. should try and sign them as a client. Could be interesting. <laughs> so there's the agency business. And so Jack in the Box, while it's primarily digital, it is an integrated communications agency. And then you have Bang Bang and Sniper, which are two sides of the same coin. Bang Bang is now a brand catering to international production services for shoots coming into India. And uh, Sniper, so the thinking on that was that in an era where brands are producing hundreds of pieces of content as opposed to five TV commercials a year, you need a different approach. And Sniper was all about that. So really, it's positioning and it's the same team. You know, So there's Sniper, there's Bang Bang, there's Jack in the Box. And the overall company is the 120 Media Collective, which has these various pieces in it. And Where does the name come from? So the name, there is a lot of different reasons uh, behind the name, but the one that is the official version, which is most sort of, which resonates most with what we do is that 120 is anything from 120 seconds to 120 minutes of content, for example. Uh, not strictly within that range, but it's, it's a story. Well, the 120 Media Collective, so there's the agency business, there's the content business, and there is the production business. And when I say the content business, the newest manifestation of that is Superfly, which started in April 2015. As a joint venture with UK-based Diagonal View. Well, it's a partnership with uh, Diagonal View, yes, and they are an equity partner. It all started with, you know, we were exploring what to do in, in that space. So for us, you know, we were creating content, premium content, digital content, all kinds of content across the board for a while. We also had deep insight into how brands operate and their priorities Essentially, in one form or another, we were creating engagement between brands and audiences through compelling content for, at that point, eight and a half years. What we were missing was, in my head, the distribution play. And there's an Indian media luminary named uh, Subhash Chandra who said in a conference in 06, I heard him say, content is king, distribution is God for the first time. And that really resonated with me. And I was like, wow, okay, that sounds really good. And it really has deep meaning as well. And right then, in my little year one entrepreneur head, I'm thinking, okay, distribution play. Maybe we'll start a TV channel or a broadcast network. Or who knew back then, right? And so in 2013, when we started thinking that, you know, we've got all this stuff, but now we need to get to the distribution. We need to actually be direct to audience. How are we going to do that? In June 2014, I was here in LA at a conference, Stream Market. One of the first people I ran into at that conference was a guy named Matt Hyman, who was the founder of Diagonal View. And Matt and I got talking, and about nine months later, we created Superfly was launched. And so, you know, we had and the idea of, of building Superfly was how do we actually get into that space using everything we'd you know, done over the past nine plus years to give ourselves a competitive advantage. And we had all of that, and we had 
Diagonal View who brought to the table the specialized knowledge of building audience on digital video. We also had through Jack in the Box, because in Jack in the Box, we run, apart from, you know, the traditional digital agency model, we also run content platforms. So we were big in content marketing and we run content platforms for brands. So there's something called Be Beautiful, which is one of India's leading destinations online for women. And so that's completely outsourced to us. And so that, you know, and then we have something else called uh, The Label, which is for another men's apparel brand called Louis Philippe. And so having these two, starting them, running them, building audience, making them successful, has given us tremendous insight into how the digital publishing business works. And to anyone who's in either of these spaces, you know that while it's all about building audience and making it sticky, the skill set, there is, you know, video is highly specialized. And what you learn in the overall digital publishing business is another whole skill set altogether. And so the combination of these two things, I think, Get, puts us in a very interesting position to be able to utilize those to build our own properties going forward. Fantastic. And it's mostly original content kind of owned and operated and produced in-house, or are you also empowering individual creators to produce content? We're doing that as well, both. So we started off in more, dare I say the word, the term, MCN. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Which we need to dig into because everyone has different thoughts about the, about the term, but you know, you look at Diagonal View, which a lot of people would probably call an MCN, but in many respects is the furthest thing from it. They do original production work for the Olympics and they do audience development and kind of content management or rights management work for like Sony Music Group. And Matt and the team have built a phenomenal business, but it's it's not your traditional go out and roll up a bunch of creators and monetize off the AdSense. And it seems like even the partnership and what Superfly is focused on is very different as well. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, we we started working with creators and we have just about 100 channels right now. And the way we look at it is that we don't want to make this, this is not a, a game of scale for that part of the business. What that does is it allows us to work with these creators, but it also allows us to have a funnel for our own properties and give it's a symbiotic relationship with the talent because they get more exposure, et cetera. And we get to build these properties around them as well. Some of the properties that we're building are with these creators. Some may not even require, you know, talent to be attached to it. Just to give you an idea of the rest of the business, which is phase two, which is what we're getting into right now. We just announced last week a partnership with a guy named Vivek Law. Vivek is India's biggest name in personal finance. I often joke with him saying you're the Suze Suze Ormond of India. He used to be the editor of Bloomberg and was most recently with the India Today Group, which is a big media company. And he came on board with us about a week ago and we're launching a personal finance content brand. So it's a personal finance content brand called Investonomics with an X. I ask because I'm, I think we'll be announced by then. Ah, okay. We hadn't announced the name. Sure. But, you know, the thinking on that is that personal finance in India is, or like anywhere, it's one of high priority, like healthcare, but it's pretty intimidating for people. And in emergent India, there is a big gap right now because the financial services space, like in any other market, is fairly complex. And you need someone to demystify and decipher what's going on. And you can't do that without a huge amount of credibility and expertise. So obviously Vivek brings that to the table and it was kind of a match made in heaven. And we're creating the idea is to build 
audience and it's not just one audience, but specific audiences. So starting with sort of more mainstream content then talking to youth, talking to women, talking to what's called the NRI audience, which is non-resident Indian, which is the Indian diaspora all over the world. Those who are connected to India financially or emotionally also have a lot of transactions, et cetera, going back and forth. The thinking is that on the business side of it, financial services brands are actually the highest spenders in the digital space. So it's a great space to be in. And that aside, SEBI, which is the Indian SEC, is mandated that all mutual funds companies need to spend a certain amount on investor education as well. So it's a great business to be in. There's a clear gap. And so that's one. Um, Congratulations. That's an exciting partnership. Thank you. And then there's other stuff that we're looking at. One is in the sports space, which is, again, Diagonal View has a brand called Football Daily, which is one of the leading YouTube channels. And more than that now, it's leading digital brand in the soccer space globally. It's, I think by numbers, it may not be the largest. I think Major League Soccer is probably the largest, but I'm sure, I don't know if you Americans realize that no one watches Major League Soccer outside of the U.S. Or even call it soccer for that matter. Yeah, (laughs) true. Exactly. And so it's a big sport in India. Everyone thinks India is all about cricket, which is true. But if you look at the 18 to or the 15 to 35 male demographic in the top 10 cities in India, it's actually the number one sport. And then we are about to announce a big partnership with a big global sports brand and we'll be doing all their content for India. So that's, you know, you've got financial services covered, you've got sports over there, and there's other stuff which we're doing, talking to college kids and a few others. So we're going after... Certainly been busy. Yeah, yeah, very busy. And so we're going after specific audiences with specific interest areas. And the idea really is to build Superfly into a digital broadcast network, which is primarily video, but not just. And so the conversations, you know, we would be having with large advertisers or media agencies in about 18 months from now should be the kinds of conversations that TV networks are having in India right now. Let's talk a little bit more about the Indian online video market. Mm -hmm. So there's an abundance of MCNs from Culture Machine, Ping Digital, uh, Pepper Media, many, many more. And there's been a lot of recent investment activity in the space. I think we'll soon see some M&A activity as well. What are your thoughts on the evolution of video in terms of the Indian market? I think we're just seeing the very beginning of it, you know, in terms of looking at it through the lens that you just outlined, which is funding and the M&A space. And I think... Culture Machine set a very high bar very quickly. I mean, they raised $3 million in September 14 and $18 million in Jan 15. So that's really fast by any standard. But other than that, I think while on one hand, you are going to see a lot of activity. On the other hand, you know, your traditional VCs just, you know, they don't like this space, right? But that's fine. We don't need to talk to them. I think there's, it's either going to come from media companies, a strategic play, or there is a handful of specialized VCs or PEs who actually look at the space and get it and have an appetite for it. But I think it's really about the differentiation because right now what you have is a situation where you just have a lot of Me Too's mushrooming all over the place. What we're trying to do, we had the good fortune of starting toward the beginning of the post-MCN era. That was a short era. What do you mean by that? Post-MCN era? Post-MCN era is when all the excitement and euphoria of the maker deal died down. And suddenly, so I'll tell you how how I look at it in my head. June 2014, I was at Stream Daily. 
when I met Matt and everyone, you know, it was the maker deal got announced in April. And this was a few months after that. And everyone was an MCN and everyone was talking about it. And, you know, the word MCN was just the term MCN was just being thrown around like crazy. Exactly a year later, it took 12 months only. I was there again. And the panel before I was speaking on a panel and the panel before mine was called the death of the MCN. And the same companies who were calling themselves MCNs 12 months before were really going to town justifying that they weren't MCNs and this is why and this is why not. I just spoke at Digital Entertainment World last week and the same phenomenon is occurring. I don't understand it because at the end of the day, it's the equivalent of saying television is dead or radio is dead. And I guess you can make an argument that there's less interest in them, but at the same time, television is still growing. In fact, the number of channels and the ad spending on television grows each year. It's not capturing the public or the industry attention like MCNs are or were, and now say virtual reality is today, but by no means are MCNs dead, especially from a global perspective. We're seeing a proliferation of content creators as well as networks pop up all over the world, particularly in Latin America and Southeast Asia. Yeah, no doubt. I think... What's happened is that the term has become pejorative, that's all. And whether you call it MCNs or NPNs or video networks or whatever... It's all the same. Yeah, it's all the same. So I think it's just more about the term than anything else. I think the big difference being that in its purest form, which is almost textbook uh, hypothetical stuff, an MCN owns zero IP, right? I think, and that's what... And I, I don't think there ever was a situation where an MCN owned absolutely zero IP. I think everyone owned some amount of IP, but I think it was just, you know, the criticism of the fact that, okay, you're buying, you know, 40,000 channels and X billion views, but what do you, what does that really mean? And how many million are you paying for that again? So, you know, it's, it's really that thinking. And I think that also just because the maker deal got done with a certain formula, Everyone's like, okay, this is the way deals are going to get done. There's no way deals are going to get done like this. I mean, it's going to maybe there'll be one more deal. I don't know what happened with Style Hall. It probably happened in the same way. They probably looked at it in the same way. That model's dead. No one's going to look at it in the same way anymore. 5X of grossed up revenue or whatever it was. It's out of the question. I think the quibbling over the term is silly for the most part, but I'll share two more thoughts. One is that it is a bit of a catch-all term, right? Like not all MCNs have even remotely the same business model and the business model has evolved significantly over the years. But even today you look at Maker, which functions essentially as kind of a global ad network and is creating content and doing other things. But for the most part, they've just amassed a huge scale and reach, which is significant. Whereas Fullscreen for a long time viewed as the tech-enabled MCN is now making a play for OTT and SVOD revenue, which is going to be a very long-term vision. And then Awesomeness TV is much more of a next generation studio than it is a true kind of creator network. It it almost evolved as a fan club more than an MCN. So I think that's been a part of it. And I'll I'll share a comment that Ezra Cooperstein, president of Fullscreen, shared, which is that at the end of the day, the term doesn't matter. But it's almost a good thing that we're all finally called MCNs and people know what that means. Because two years ago, when you walked into an agency in New York and you were trying to explain what an MCN was, you'd spend half the meeting just trying to tell them what your business model was. Today, you can say you're an MCN and people have some understanding that you work with creators and you work in digital video. And I think that's actually a benefit for the space. Oh, undoubtedly. I think that is true because in the broader media space, I mean, you know, for God's sake, you can walk into a creative agency now and say MCN and people understand that term, which was out of the question a year and a half ago. So there's no doubt about that. But at the same time, I found that, you know, we're raising a round of funding right now. And so 
the conversations, you know, we walked in. I remember this was about, you know, a few months, a couple of months ago at the beginning of the process. And we walked into a meeting. It was a, a VC, a pretty big VC in India. It was a friend of mine. So the conversation started on mail. And he said, we've taken a call not to invest in MCNs. And so I said, okay, well, this is a little bit different in my head it was. And I went in and we started talking about it. And, you know, it started by saying, you know, think of a digital broadcast network of the future. And it was like, oh, it's not an MCN. So, you know, I think it just means different things. It does. It says, I mean, at the end of the day, they're all next generation media companies. Yeah. And it's not just a phenomenon that's happening in television and film, which is really where MCNs grew up. But it's the same thing is happening with publishers, right? Look at what Woven Digital and Complex Crave and, and even Mashable and BuzzFeed have done. Look at what traditional entertainment players are doing in music as well as film and TV. So that's really the shift that's occurring. And, and you shouldn't just abandon investments or uh, interest in next generation media just because this idea of MCN 1.0, where you're aggregating creators and monetizing a rev share off their, you know, off the AdSense revenue is no longer the best business model in the world. Yeah, I think you just hit the nail on the head. It's about that. And I think that's, that's key. As I think as long as the moment people understand that, you know, AdSense revenue isn't your be all and end all, then they're like, oh, okay, okay, this is, this is pretty interesting now, because then everyone's got divergent models, which, you know, there's some innovation happening here and there. The last thing I'll say on this point is something that I really don't think anyone has introduced in the conversation, and that's the role that YouTube has played in changing the moniker. Prior to Susan Wojcicki entering the leadership as CEO of YouTube, there was a very healthy interest in the enterprise community working with MCNs. And there was also this notion that to be a creator and monetize effectively on the platform, you almost had to join an MCN. There was a mad rush to sign up in 2009, 2010, right. because if you were looking to monetize your content, that was the only way. Now, YouTube has taken a view, rightly so, in wanting to work directly with creators and in some sense has taken some actions which seem to be disintermediating MCNs, for better or for worse, and maybe perhaps reluctant at the size and the power that many MCNs now wield, especially here in LA. So I think there's been a move towards breaking that up and shifting the power dynamic back to creators, which is where it belongs. But at the same time, MCNs and others in the space have evolved in a meaningful way to evangelize what is happening in digital video to the advertiser community and also supporting creators in a way that YouTube will not be able to do at scale. So there needs to find a balance in which the two kind of can coexist. Totally agree. So we'll move on. I'm really curious to learn a little bit more about your entrepreneurial journey. Have you always thought of yourself or considered yourself an entrepreneur? Well, if I go back to my days at business school, so while I was doing my MBA, it was, I was pretty sure I was going to become an entrepreneur. The question was when. I didn't realize I would pretty much jump right into it right after B-School. And what's the hardest part of starting your own company? The hardest part, I think, well, (laughs) I'm I'm thinking back to the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey. I had never worked in India. I was starting my own business. And so to an extent, right in the beginning, it was like banging my head against a brick wall. Because culturally, you know, as an Indian who had worked outside of India all his life, there was stuff I just wasn't used to, you know. And for example, I remember in my first few months, I'd be, you know, shouting at someone, yelling at someone on the phone every day, uh, you know, and, you know, someone from the bank and they'd be like, oh, but I was like, but you promised it to me for today. Oh, but it'll happen tomorrow. But then why did you tell me today? You know, and stuff that this is just stuff that happens in India. You know, this is how it goes. So I was dealing with that 
and the whole uncertainty and, and tension of, of, of starting a new business. Um, and not having a network there, you know, as much tied to the Exactly, exactly. The first time you start, and I say this because, I mean, I, I wouldn't call myself a serial entrepreneur, but, you know, we've created a few brands along the way. And Superfly was, you know, after doing all this for nine years. And it gets easier, right? Because you have the credibility, you have a reputation. And to me, the, the hardest part was actually trying to convince people in a market where I hadn't even worked there, right? So I didn't even have my professional network, as you just pointed out. And trying to convince people that, you know, you're someone who knows what he's talking about. That was the hard part because it took, it took some time. Because, you know, there's a lot of smooth talkers and snake oil salesmen around the place. So take some time. That took about... You know, I mean, stuff was happening slowly, trickling in. But I'd say if I really were to compartmentalize it and analyze it, it probably took about two years to get over that. Do you have any other advice for first-time founders? Well, you have to just do it. Because I know a lot of people who are almost first-time founders but are not. Entrepreneurs? Yeah, entrepreneurs. Exactly. And my advice to entrepreneurs, get over it. Everyone has bills to pay. Everyone's got, you know, not everyone, but like, you know, a lot of people have families to support. A lot of people have this to do and that to do. But if you really are going to do this, you can't pussyfoot around it and, you know, say, I'm going to like, you know, spend a few hours doing this on the side or whatever. Just dive into it. And you have to be so 100% committed to it. And you kill the idea over and over again, but it just keeps coming back up and haunting you. And you, you can't imagine doing anything else that that's when you know. Yeah, you totally. Out. What's next for Superfly? Like I said, you know, we're raising a round of funding right now. I think we've got the first nine months we spent sort of finding ourselves and understanding what it is that we're going to be doing exactly. I think we've figured it out. And I know that we're going to be wrong on a number of fronts, but that's just part of the journey. I think the most interesting thing about doing something in a nascent space is that there are no rules. You can't really look at someone else's success and say that, you know, these are the three rules of success or whatever. And things are changing so rapidly. And, you know, just that whole example of, you know, glorified MCN year and, you know, MCNs being the worst kind of year or whatever. So that just shows how fast things are changing. And I think while to me, the way I look at it is that you can have a plan. And this is what I tell our potential investors as well as we have a plan. We know where we're going. We could be wrong along the way, but because you know you're dealing with an experienced team and we have the network with brands, etc., you know, it's a pretty de-risked good chance of success. But are we going to be doing what we're saying we're going to be doing? Largely yes in the details, quite possibly not. In addition to your business ventures, you also serve as a board advisor for the Indian Digital Media Awards and Content Marketing Summit Asia. And you mentor young entrepreneurs at the Indian Business School. What inspired you to get involved in those organizations? I really enjoy the process of, of giving back in these settings. I, okay, so in its purest form, I realized about 10 years ago that I really enjoy teaching. Funny story from, I always felt that my life was full of contrasts. And I remember I was an account executive at Young Rubicam Budapest, and I had graduated at the Budapest Economics University. And they asked me to come back a couple of years later and, you know, talk to a marketing class about how an advertising agency works from the inside. And it was a Monday morning. I remember Monday morning, really cold outside, and I was there talking about all of this. And uh, there were, and I was also a DJ at the time. And then there were a couple of people in the back. At the end of my lecture, uh, two guys came to me and said, okay, this is going to sound really strange, but were you the DJ at this party? I was, like, <laughs> I was like, you know, at this club or whatever. I was like, yeah, I was. And they were like, oh my God. And it was like this amazing moment because they were completely shocked 
uh, that it was the same guy. And in my head, I was like, oh, that's nice. It kind of felt good because I, I liked the contrast of it and it just sort of came together over there. You can do it all. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it kind of, that was the beginning of my realization that I enjoy sort of advising and mentoring wherever possible. Obviously, you know, I mean, I have a lot to learn myself and I feel, I feel like I've just sort of, you know, this first 10 years of entrepreneurship has really taught me a lot in terms of I've made a lot of mistakes. We as a company, we've made mistakes, but you learn. I'd like to share that with people. And, you know, not everyone can learn from other people's mistakes, but some people can. And so that's part of that overall process of whether it's being on the board of, you know, mentoring business school students or I invest in early stage businesses. Let's talk more about that. Yeah, you're, you're an active member of the Indian Angel Network. That's right. So it's, what kind of businesses do you invest in? So the Indian Angel Network is now the largest angel network in the world. I think there's like 400 and something. I have invested. So I'm not someone who can invest in stuff that I don't understand. And I know that sounds kind of obvious for most people, but it's not. Because when you have an angel network with that many people, what happens is because it's kind of retail investing. So for example... If, you know, someone's raising, a company's raising a million dollars, it'll be broken up into small fragments. So you can, you know, afford to spend, you know, invest in like 20 businesses over the year with a little bit of cash or whatever it is. What tends to happen is sometimes someone might find something interesting because, you know, from whatever you can tell, it seems like a good opportunity. But then you also have the benefit of people within the network who really understand that space. And if you're thinking, okay, those three are standing behind it and so are those two over there, they're pretty smart people and they're probably, you know, it's a calculated bet and they know the space. So I'll just, you know, invest, you know, a few thousand dollars kind of thing. But for me personally, it has to be either media or travel or, I mean, I can't invest in medical devices, for example. So it has to be something that I can relate to either professionally or as audience or consumer. And so it's been it's been good. I've been doing this for about year six now. I've had a few good exits. And uh, in the process, I've also learned a lot. And I've also had the, you know, good fortune of having, you know, being able to have interacted with a lot of smart people, young, older, whatever it might be. I am we're actually just announcing going to be taking a board seat on a video startup, which is focused on the kids space. Fantastic. Um, yeah, Congratulations. So, thank you. So that's very interesting. That's my latest investment. As in, we haven't started yet. It'll happen in a couple of weeks. There's so much opportunity in the kids content space. Yeah. And Yoboho came out of India. It was very early, exited broadband TV, but there's mm -hmm. so much content and a great audience that, of course, wants to watch and watch content over and over again. So, yeah, totally. Totally. And I think it's interesting because the kids space, the dynamics are quite different. Kids are, they're a different kind of audience. And also, you know, you're talking to, there's two layers. You're talking to the kids, you're talking to the parents, and they have some involvement in as well, depending on, you know, the age of the kids. It's an entirely different ecosystem, has its own world. I mean, you know, and also because of the, the merchandising side of it and the toy industry side of it and all of that, right? So L&M plays a big part in this whole space as well. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions about the digital media or online video space, what would they be? Well, at the risk of being obvious, Captain Obvious says VR. And I think, you know, it's, you know, 2016 is the year of early adoption. 2017, it's going to go mainstream. I've heard so many people say that. And it does feel right. I mean, yeah. they say 2017 holiday season will be when people finally get the devices, you know, and, and are playing around with real games at a consumer level. Yeah. So I think, I don't know, maybe I heard it on this podcast, an episode last week or before, or maybe it was somewhere else. But it was said that 
2015 was year zero, 2016 is year one, and so on. We certainly dug into that with John Krupp from Tubular Labs and Chadwick Turner from Circle VR and Luke Wang, who have all dabbled with VR and certainly seems like that timeline aligns with what you said. Yeah, no doubt. I think that, but the interesting thing is this, and this is a conversation I was having a couple of hours ago at a meeting I was at, and me and the other guy both seem to think that VR is actually bigger than this industry we're in. It's... I think, uh, you know, where this can go is way bigger than media or entertainment. I think that... Well, it has impacts for education and travel and yeah. so many categories. Yeah. And, and augmented reality, too. All forms of immersive video are going to revolutionize the way we create and interact with content and experiences. Exactly. And I think that using that, you may find, much in the way that Apple started to transcend various industries, you might find some companies which managed to actually crack VR and lead the way, sort of spreading their tentacles into other spaces in the same way. So I think there's going to be, it's going to be quite interesting for industry or cross-industry dynamics as well. Yeah, so that's VR. What are your other predictions? The other predictions are, well, in India... Well, let me tell you something from an Indian context is that, you see, so far in India, we've had a lot of the growth being from urban markets for obvious reasons. The rest, you know, what's going to happen now going forward with the fact that you have mobile phones in the hands of hundreds of millions of Indians, I think the smartphone number is at about 250 million already, which is, and, you know, with your 4G networks and everything starting now. So the growth is coming from rural. That's going to need a whole different kind of content play. And I think that the fact that India is so diverse throws up all kinds of other questions and opportunities. There's going to be, you know, you're going to have, as it is, you have film produced in 35 different languages in India. And I think with the proliferation of mobile handsets, you're going to have content produced in probably 70. Just for context, we have 400 different languages in India to start with. So I think that what that means is with while you have a lot of media companies entering India and Netflix most recently, I think Netflix has been very, they announced recently that they're not looking for audiences of millions in India and they're not even, they don't even have illusions of that. They're just looking to target Indians like me, perhaps, you know, people who have credit cards and travel and who watch Game of Thrones. And and so I think that whole trend is going to point to decentralization of content creation in India in a big way. And then the third thing is internationalization of content, right? So for about 20 years now, and I'm talking about, you know, being from a country that has the other big film industry in the world, you know, Hollywood, Bollywood crossover of talent and, you know, trying to get like, you know, movies made, which have sensibilities for both sides and things like that. It's been, there've been a lot of attempts. Some of them failed, some of them kind of moderately successful. You have a bit of background in film yourself, if I'm not mistaken. Well, yes, I acted in a couple of films in that time. I was trying to figure out what to do. Uh, Not too much, just a bit of dabbling. (laughs) Terrible. And your wife is pretty immersed in that world. Uh, She is. And she's an actress who's done... I think about 15 or 18 films. And now she has her own TV show, which she, or sorry, it's a multi-platform show that she co-produces with us. And so I think that the internationalization of content means that we're going to be able to, and it seems like an obvious one. And, you know, people say that, you know, digital is without boundaries and things like that. But I think that it's truly going to be the case in terms of 
you know, you're going to have content for us, for example, we're not, well, we're going to be primarily focused on the Indian market. The ambition is to create content globally that resonates globally. And there's an interesting path that, for example, comedy has taken. If you look at it, you know, culturally, comedy has a way of getting some people in mainstream audiences excited before it actually starts permeating an entire culture. So even though, let's say, people sitting in LA or New York may not have deep understanding about, you know, every Indian joke, but you can appreciate stuff which, you know, with a certain lens. And so I think that content can travel more easily in this time and it'll happen much more. If you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? I am starting a business in the online video <laughs> space today. <laughs> this is true. But if you had to start over right now, Superfly didn't exist. What would you have your eye on? I think, you know, I hate to be Captain Obvious again and, you know, be cliched about it. But this VR thing has been really sort of, you know, keeping my... I think I think about VR every single day in some context or the other. And, you know, I know that it's there's a lot of companies doing it and are specializing in it. And this is just, you know, their entire existence. But... I think that, you know, just the thought of the immersive experience excites me and what implications it can have. So I think that I would, we are doing it now, but we haven't done it yet. But if I were starting from scratch, I would look very strongly at that. When I get back next week, we have a workshop being organized by a company called Happy Finish that does a lot of VR work out of London. They're coming in to do a demo and workshop for the whole company just to kind of get people to understand what it is. So where can people find out more about you? More about the 120 Media Collective or Superfly in particular? Superfly, actually, we have a site that's up right now. And hopefully, well, I think by the time this is out, you can look on the site because the current site, as on today when we're speaking, is a little bit outdated. But I think there'll be a lot more information on more current stuff on superfly.com. That's S-O-O-P-E-R-F-L-Y.com. About me personally, LinkedIn is a great place and Twitter. Any other recommendations or advice for people listening? Closing thoughts? So I'm a very strong believer in the coming together of different influences. And I think that applies extremely strongly in both art and commerce, whether it's, you know, genres of music or it's business industries. So I think that it's important to look at what's happening, not just in your space, but what's happening around because the next big thing will come from how your space touches the next space. And I think that's always the seed of innovation in most cases. That's one. The other thing is this, that I find that a lot of companies and entrepreneurs in the digital space tend to be digital isolationists. And we look down on traditional media in many ways, which I think doesn't make sense. Let's not forget that, well, it might be in the U.S., it may not be the case any longer or in the UK, but in the rest of the world, traditional media is still bigger. And while in India, uh, digital isn't growing at the expense of traditional media. So, you know, there's, they're both growing. And in, in other markets, you know, digital might be growing and traditional might be stagnant. But the fact is that it's still a very viable medium. So for us, we have the advantage of having started in the traditional space. And so television is just another platform where the audience is. And that's how you need to look at it. So I think don't be a digital isolationist. Remember, people are still buying print. People are still watching television. Tremendous advice. Rupak, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate all the insights and uh, just some great stories in general. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. 
I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. Bye.